North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. Uh, Dr. Kuntz, in our uh, audio testing, you mentioned Kyoto, the capital of Japan, randomly. I happened to come across Japan in my reading yesterday, randomly, uh, a gentleman named Kirk Koch, a reverend who has written on demonology, who I can't recommend entirely, but certainly he has cataloged a great deal of, what, if not errata, uh, descriptions of scenarios with people who are combating hauntings and things like that. Yeah. In any case, he was of the opinion that Japan is the least Christianizable country in the world because of its dark power, like literally, actually, dark okay. power. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a fascinating question because it's not for lack of effort. Um, Japan was evangelized systematically by a wide variety of European and American groups, really from its opening up in the 1850s. So there has been an immense amount of time, money, blood, sweat, tears poured into evangelizing Japan as there was before that with obviously less coordination because the world was bigger in the 17th century with the Dutch and the Portuguese. Obviously, like so much else in missionary history that runs alongside things that have very little to do with conversion or belief in the gospel. But there was that effort and there remains that effort. I think that something that is especially difficult for any missionary about a society like Japan is similar to the reality that you have in the early church where rural people convert much more slowly. And that's, that's the case also with the Reformation, where urban people will reform faster and farther uh, along whatever sort of axis you want to draw than rural people. And it's not that Japan is highly rural anymore, as it was in the 19th century, but they do retain a measure of social and political and deeper than that cultural cohesion that used to be definitive of being a rural person. So they are, I think, despite their high degree of urbanization, much more like rural people in previous centuries than most developed countries. And so their willingness to change or even their need, their, their perception that something needs to change or ought to change or even could or should is probably going to be very, very different than someone who grows up in kind of an Applebee's suburb somewhere and uh, grew up, you know, whatever Baptist. And one day decides that he's, you know, a uh, traditionalist Russian Orthodox and has detailed opinions about, you know, the switch to the Gregorian calendar and the disaster that that's been for Christ church. That malleability, I think, cultural, psychological malleability is not going to be there to anything like the same degree in a society like Japan. So how does this connect with, say, paganism? Well, Japan is a really fascinating place in this regard, because partly because of vocabulary, Japanese people report that they're not religious, because religion is associated with not just Christianity, but with a phrase that the Japanese actually invented. It's a rare transplant from Japanese into Western languages, and that is the phrase new religions, of which Japan has a fair number, pretty much all cooked up in some conurbation, usually around Tokyo. But those new religions are things that will often integrate traditional Japanese thinking, which is always some blend of Shinto 
and Japan's particular take on Buddhism, which is unlike everyone else's. <laughs> and but what J Japan is fascinating most of all because it is a completely technologically modernized country, in many ways far more functional than say the United States. But it's a place that has preserved its own practice of paganism, especially in Shinto, but even I think in its in the way that it practices Buddhism, for instance, using Buddhism to handle funerals because Shinto priests are not allowed to have contact with the dead. That's interesting. I thought Shinto was all about worshiping the dead. Shinto is about communion with the kami which is really not well translated as gods because they're not necessarily that big or comprehensive, but they're spirits indwelling things. And that links up better with the sort of blatant West Coast paganism, probably now spreading to the other coast and, and other parts of America via the internet that we talked about last time. I think people are just um, migrating. Yeah. And so, so I, I, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's, strictly or only about ancestor worship. I mean, pretty much any kind of paganism worth its salt is going to have ancestor well, worship. Okay. So let me, but, let me back up though yeah. and say like, so if you've got official priesthoods mm -hmm. that are busy dealing with indwelling spirits, right? I'm going to say you probably aren't really like ready for Christianity. Like you, in fact, or maybe you are ready. That's just it. You know, you've got the devil on a shoestring giving you what you want. And it's yeah. working out pretty well for your society. Last thing you need is some uh, cross mucking that all up. Well, I, I think that there's a way in which I have often thought that it would be easier or clearer or simpler to evangelize a group or an individual who were practicing something that is a lot more like what's in the Bible than your average, you know, Applebee's suburban American who is sort of apathetic and has been dulled right, to right, the presence right, right. of order or beauty in the world. The pagan is, is worshiping the wrong things, but he isn't ignoring the fact that there are powers greater than himself, that they are impressive and beautiful and worth preserving on their own. And the Bible was dealing, especially the Old Testament, is dealing directly with just such people. Whereas what we're often dealing with in the West or what, you know, sometimes gets called the secular West. There's a book that I found very helpful. I, I mentioned in the discord the other day, church planting in the secular West by a Dutchman named Stefan Pass. And the thing that he identifies as one of the most difficult things about evangelizing the West is the degree of programming, usually via the educational process. And we'll be talking about higher education here in a little bit that makes people necessarily apathetic or dulled in so many ways. It's it's like we're all on some degree of Xanax for the soul, where we just don't have feelings about big mountains or storms that are out of our control or any of the things that spark imagination in pagans and worship, misdirected as it is, right? But like when Paul's talking about that, he doesn't say that they shouldn't be in awe at what happens in nature. They should, they should look through the created things and worship the creator who made them, right? right. Rather than exchanging, you know, corruptible images for the, the immortal God. So that there is a sense in which I thought, you know, somebody that is, you know, has an ancestor cult, you know, somewhere in the Amazon or in Japan or, you know, the Gambia would actually be a little easier to talk to, at least from a strictly biblical starting point. But that's than someone assuming a where I have to say like, Hey, like, don't you, don't you like feel that's, that sometimes things are really awful and you wish life were really different? Right, right, well, right, no, right. not really, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're coming from it from I think a a post uh, 2020 is the wrong way to say it, but a a post shift mindset so that you would talk to them differently than say the 1950s missionary probably would have talked to them. That is, uh, your appropriation of the biblical worldview seems to be a little less new religion ish than say modern Christianity is. Uh, to kind of get back to some of that language from from Japan. You've talked recently in other places about the, the barbarians who are yeah. coming, and, and I think I've advocated are, are here. And this connects to what you were saying, too, that I think that the barbarians 
are those who know that the sky and the wind are more than what you see and that you yeah. do not get to control them, but in fact, bigger things than you do control them. And the modern man has had uh, his spirit sucked away from such a belief by his conviction that the screen, in fact, is the oracle of God. Uh, and, and in that way, I, I mean, I think, I really do believe this at this point, that the, the lack of chutzpah from the American populace is, uh, is screen addiction. It's straight up. Uh, or generation-long buildup to where the spirit just can't imagine reality because we're too, we've never been able to process all we've seen. And we're so desensitized yeah. to stuff. We think we've seen it because we've seen a picture. Yeah. You, you think yeah, you've I, seen it. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a combination of that and and also I do, I do I I believe that the biological poisoning of the American populace for sure, which is far more extensive than in any westernized country, most of which will ban things that we allow people to eat and drink here has something to do with our incapacity to resist that. I mean, remember when we used to make fun of the French for being chickens, but they have massive nationwide in the street protests mm -hmm. over vaccine passports, the like of which I have not seen in the United States. And I hope I'm just totally wrong about that. But I think that there is a sort of biological neutering and a theological deadening in people's lives that makes them simply not not just not only antagonistic potentially sure but before that and and after that before they're angry that you're not wearing a mask or you know getting injected or whatever they are simply apathetic about so many things their their personal appearance the way that they treat people whether or not they have friends or a family or lots of things that are kind of givens for human beings throughout history and so there is something unusually denatured about us, especially in the United States, that I don't think obtains in Europe or Japan, even though on paper, those places are more, quote, secular than the U.S. is. So, so I am in pursuit of being a noble barbarian. I believe the civilization I live in is so corrupt. I'm not going to become a desert father. I'm, I'm not going to go, you know, be, stand on the streets and watch it all burn down around me. What I'm going to do is embrace what I believe is the, the future past. The, the old reality of Christianity is going to endure past all of this. And what I want to do is reappropriate that biblical worldview to my mind as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Being a skeptic of the skepticism that's just run on the water on everything for so, so long. Now, you've got a word that, I, I don't know, have you coined this? Is this a movement already um, that kind of summarizes this idea, I think, which is rewilding. Rewilding. Yeah. Yeah, the, the term is from originally conservation biology, and it's used sometimes for very explicit political purposes. I'm not going to advocate for a, you know, a wolf corridor somewhere in the Northwest right now today or, or something like that. But just within biology, strictly speaking, not within, you know, activism, rewilding has to do with saying, okay, what is actually supposed to be in this ecosystem that would keep it in balance? That would keep things healthy. So the reason that you have white-tailed deer running all over lots of American suburbs is because it's not just that they have no animal predators, it's that the humans who live in those suburbs don't know, don't know how to and, and wouldn't want to hunt them. Not allowed to without paying for it, only at certain right. times a year, a bunch of other things involved. Yeah. Zoning, you know, very important. Keep going. So rewilding is you know not my term, but it has to do very generically with a restoration to something at least closer to nature, closer to sustainable, closer to healthy than where we are now. And the reason to use that term is that I think on the biological level, I already mentioned, this is something that is the lack of which is completely eviscerating our capacity, let alone the vehemence our of our response power, to our lots will, of things yeah, will, that are spirit is just is just gone yeah they're just gone so how do you yeah. naturalize uh, and what a fascinating idea that nature we're, we're against our nature right yeah well it, 
it, it's kind of it, it's a concept that once you get hold of it, there's almost no realm of life where you don't realize that this would actually be better, right? So yeah. Um, yeah, we've talked a lot about you know media consumption, but it also goes to food consumption. Do I eat foods that have any relationship to you know sun and light and plant growth, whether I'm eating animals or plants? Or are they wildly and highly processed? And is that actually what my body will respond well to? But it also applies to things like education, which we've been talking about, because when I'm talking about education, if I'm being honest or you know, not just <laughs> in it to uh, get prestige or money uh, from people, from other people, then I'm always looking at what would actually be good for the whole person what would be good for his body, what would be good for his mind, what would be good for the people he's going to be serving and helping and uh, leading when he is done with the educational process, which historically there is an end to the educational process. So when we're looking at nature, that's going to give me some some cues and some boundaries for what I'm trying to accomplish with him. Uh, the opposite of rewilding would be, as I've talked about before, transgenderism, which is a view of human beings, their bodies, but also their souls, and so therefore uh, their educational processes, where human beings do not need to be restored to anything or brought into comfort and the capacity to, to do well what is in their nature to do. Instead, transgenderism is, is paradigmatic for our place and time because it says that you are always being changed and the only way to be who you truly are is to be dependent on unnatural, expensive substances, maybe paid for by taxpayers, but you will only be who you truly know you're supposed to be if I sort of tell you a lot about who you're truly supposed to be. And then you are willing to become dependent on unnatural synthetic substances in order to become and to remain that person, right? So the reason that this is such a, such a, a paradigm of our time is that when lockdowns were actually real lockdowns throughout the United States last year, there were people who were, uh, their bodies were rewilding because they did not have all the prescription access and you know medical care intervening in their body's natural processes. And they were, let's say, reverting or transforming or rewilding back into the men or women they're actually supposed to be. Wow. So yeah, I imagine there was withdrawal. Yep, exactly. So exactly. Re rewilding then, if we're going to take this as a positive endeavor that we are going to pursue becoming better men for the sake of better families, for the sake of better villages, for the sake of a better world, knowing that the barbarians knew something we've forgotten, and we've got to remember that hard and fast, and that Christianity, for those of us who are, is, is the center of that, then we also know, pushing into this, we're going to experience extreme withdrawal. It's going to happen. As you attempt to live not on Candyland, you're going to feel some pain. If you've been living on nothing but candy all this time, I mean, right. I'm, I'm not kidding. You really are. Yeah. Sugar withdrawal yeah. is going to rock you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Because when I say that transgenderism is paradigmatic, I mean, <laughs> there's something that is a little entertaining about that phrase, but it also diagnoses transgenderism as really just an extreme example of something we're all doing, which is pursuing things that are unnatural, unnaturally stressful, unnaturally complex and difficult. And that other things recommended to us by nature, recommended to us by the wisdom of scripture, those are things that will not be necessarily easy, but they will be simple in the mm. same sense that mm. it's not easy to have a boy turn into a man, right? That's hard for him. That's hard for his parents. He's got to figure out how to do that. They have to think about how to help him do that. But it's, it's a lot simpler and it's a lot more natural than trying to get a boy to turn into a girl to turn into a woman. Hmm. 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 Okay, so, so out of all of this, one of the other ideas we haven't really narrowed on is mm -hmm. that education is largely about ecosystem. Can you kind yeah. of say something about that? Yeah. And I think that that's particularly apparent when we think about the history of higher education, because there is something of a widespread misconception that the more years of education you have, the wiser you are. 
And everyone knows on one hand, that's not true, but everyone is on the other hand, often impressed by titles, positions, money statements of, of how much time you've spent in a classroom. And if you have spent that time in a classroom, whether it was through high school or through college or through some sort of postgraduate degree, I think you realize that education, because it's about the whole person, about whether or not the body and the mind are actually healthy at the same time or to the same degree, but also about whom you've met and how you learned what you learned. So did you learn philosophy as a sort of game of one-ups, uh, one-upmanship, or did you learn it as a sort of process of discovery, let's say? Did you learn that when you have two ideas in conflict, you go into debate mode, um, which is something very common in the homeschooling subculture that we talked about uh, a couple episodes back? All those things matter a lot more for not just what a person learns, but how he learns what he learns which affects, I think, a great deal more how he is after he's done learning those things than merely looking at, you know, what was the curriculum? So I think this is true for all levels of education, but I think as we go through some of this history over this episode and at least the next one, I think people see that you're dealing really with a question of whom do I know when I go into higher education? And whom do I know and how have I learned to know the things that I know when I come out of higher education? That, those are much more important questions than merely a study of curricula because a lot of the history of higher education is kind of boring <laughs> as to curricula because it's just uh, Greek classics, Latin classics, and mathematics. <laughs> and that, that will change, especially after the Civil War. But the, the reason that America, for instance, has so many different colleges and so many different kinds of higher education and always has is partly because we have so many different kinds of people and they want to further their, the projects of their group. And the best way to do that is to get all your people that you're, you're training to be elites together, uh, put them together for at least a certain period of their life. And that will produce group realities that you would not otherwise have. So I think that higher education just really exemplifies this truth about education generally, which is it really does matter almost more than what you learn, almost more. That is from whom and with whom you learn what you do learn. Why would you train your elites together in a world where you there are no elites because elites are wrong and we're all living on the same playing field, aren't we? It doesn't make <laughs> yeah. any sense. Well, we you, you, would, you would do that because you wouldn't be so stupid as to believe right. that there so, are no elites. Yeah. Probably more importantly, <laughs> uh, I think you just established, we established that education before it can be education must be a matter of media ecology. And that media ecology is what we mean by education when you and I are talking about it largely. Um, not that there's not a knowledge to be known, but that the knowledge to be known is always formed and reformed by the, the, the medium of the message. And to kind of paraphrase McLuhan a little yeah, bit there. there um, right. So there's a guy that I've mentioned before, Harold Innes. And this is really, I mean, if you're interested in media ecology, I would, I would recommend that you skip or at least set aside to begin with Marshall McLuhan because Innes grounds he he's really the source of it i mean he precedes McLuhan at the university of toronto hmm. and innis is grounding his assertions much more firmly in historical data because he's actually trained as of all things an economic historian oh great yeah yeah, yeah. wow yeah. <laughs> that that is very extensive and clear and the reason that matters is that when he asserts for instance that you know in in less, let's say, soundbite friendly terms than McLuhan did. McLuhan was much more of a, a, a public relations genius than yeah. Innes ever was, which is why nobody knows who Innes was. When he's going to assert that the medium of communication affects how the message is, is received, the thing to remember about the history of whatever the highest level of education is, whether it's scribes in ancient Mesopotamia or Israel or Egypt, or it's, you know, Harvard Business School today, you're not, nobody is paying or sacrificing for, you know, stylus that you get when you go to scribe school in ancient Babylon or something. You're not, you're not sacrificing however many years of your life or dollars in loans or whatever it is in order to pay for Wharton or for Harvard Business School 
for just the sheer content. You you really could read a book and get pretty much everything else that you need. What you're getting are connections right. and opportunities. And it's not, I don't want to phrase this in like sheer, just crass careerist terms. It's it's it it wasn't always and doesn't have to be just a matter of I'm going to go here so that I end up making 200k a year instead of 65k a year. It's it's that education is not really so much about the stuff that you learn Correct. as about the kind of person that you become. And especially in groups that want to preserve themselves, there's always some mechanism and Innis, especially in empire and communications, goes into this from antiquity down to the present day, that the media for transmitting things to the masses are going to change. And he's very interested in what is it like to have an empire where you mainly use stone and clay versus one where you mainly use newsprint, as in the case of the British Empire. Right. But the fact is that in ancient Babylonia and in 19th century Britain, if you want to be in the elites, the medium, the really finely decisive medium of education and the way that you know that you're actually in something and you're going to be something after you go through this process is always face-to-face. It's always the live voice. It's always the direct discussion and interaction, whether with the other students or with whoever the teachers are and whatever process right, they have. Disciple. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so to kind of, again, try to get some really good sound bites out of this a university then is a medium for building networks that's, that's sort of what it has become and then the person you become will be impacted by the network you are in and so selecting your network of choice for university is important and not only yeah. pay scale but then you know what kind of character are you going to be by the end of the process that they are going to put you through as the information forms you not so much as knowledge again, but as, as person, as you point out, right. um, I think all that's just really genius and uh, I'm glad to summarize it. <laughs> I, yeah. And I, I think that it's something to remember whether you're starting something or you're going through something or you're, you're deciding whether or not you want to is that the media of communication are going to change for the masses in any society, however it's constituted, however big it is, the people that actually run something are going to have face-to-face personal acquaintance with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the medium of transmission of not only knowledge about how to run things or how to do things or whatever is therefore always going to be face-to-face. And there is a preference that I think you can see biblically too for face-to-face communication because it simply has a weight even if your words are second rate if you are live with somebody it there, is there's absolutely no question in podcasting yeah. that a live guest in your studio is like it's not just better than mm-hmm. the over the internet that we're doing right now it's not just better it is it is levels of um kind better right you're exponentially yeah. improving the situation right. no right. question everyone right. knows that anyone who does this right. knows that and the, the impact made on people by people with whom they've had a personal acquaintance is way bigger, um, except in you know the case of somebody who's some sort of functioning sociopath, is way bigger than the books that they read or the ideas that they're regurgitating or, or whatever. And so that's why the character of the instructor and, and therefore the character of the, the student these are the primary considerations, right? And that's this is the biblical distinction between knowledge, which you could acquire from a book, and wisdom, which you have to acquire and integrate personally. Tim Ferriss, who I used to listen to a lot less so these days, but he one nugget that I think is valuable he taught me is that over any given like quarter or year, you are going to grow to be by and large a reflection of the people, the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. And so figuring out who those people actually are can help you, you know, resist maybe what you don't want to be formed to be because you have to be in relationship with this person one way or the other. Right? Um, or, <laughs> right. yeah. um, you know, uh, change, change friends is another way to look at it, change jobs and so forth. Uh, but I, I think that's key here, too, Then in the university setting, you are going into you're going to get that like like in manifold ways, because whoever your profs are, like they're going to form you in pretty strong ways with the way they challenge you to learn how to think, the way they make you learn how to think, right? And, and 
uh, as one who's maybe spent the last two years teaching myself to think again after being really tired of a lot of screens and computers and, and the standard education I got, that's something you want to, you don't have to sign up for that. You don't, you don't need to go through four years of think like this at that place. Right. So, so right. That, there's that applying the, the Tim Ferriss idea. And the other one is then when you go there, you're going to be surrounded by all these people. Well, who, who is your roommate? What frat do you join? Do you join a frat? Uh, all that kind of stuff as well. You can't go through that and not have it form you. You're not this giant rock in a pile of rocks. You are a piece of snow in a snowball. And a, you know, the snowball gets crushed and you're going to be crushed with it. So to understand that and that education is your surroundings and is largely the people you talk to and afterwards the knowledge you bring together, right, as you talk, which becomes the wisdom you share. It's just such a powerful idea. I hope I've put another good face on it. Yeah, and then yeah. you wanted to move from here then into kind of the, uh, do we need to talk more about the history of the forming of networks? Or have we done enough of that? Um, English models? No. Because, no, English models, yeah. Yeah, well, right, because if you're looking at the history of this, I think that it moves from something that is pretty forthright about what the goal of education is to something where the reason that we have to tell people, you know, you don't have to go to college or whatever is because we have gotten from a point that I think was very forthright. These are our elites. These are going to be, especially what are now understood as professionals and they're going to have to know each other and have some set of common goals or, you know, whatever. And I'll go into that in a second, but now we've moved to a point where there's some expectation that everyone is going to college and so college has become not necessarily graduate degrees, although maybe a master's degree is getting there. College has become something like a form of mass communication, like the newspaper in the 19th century, yeah, where you're weird. really not getting a whole lot out of it. And um, yeah, um, I, I, you're, you're, not, you're not learning to know uh, many people who are of much value. And the master's degree is kind of funny because like, like you definitely get a better education the further you go, I think it maybe depends on the, on you know what field you're in, but yeah. like the point is like, it's that there no one wants someone. There aren't that many jobs for people with master's degrees. So like you have this like really overloaded pool of people with this degree that does have some good amount of information, but it doesn't make mm -hmm. you a good you know woodworker. It makes you a good probably like professor, and then you know you just want to be who you're being trained like. That gets back to disciple master kind of stuff. I kind right. of interrupted us there. Oh, but I wanted to say this too because before we yeah. move out the um. Historically, what you're, what you're laying down right now is that the historic way that elites build networks and contact with each other for the sake of political futuring, making their own tribe, their own identity, their own ideology go forward, whatever that is, mm -hmm. yeah. has been university systems, colleges, some summer place to some, send the young that will grow. Right. What the internet has done has brought in another way to form networks and contacts. What the Mad Christian Discord is, anyone who listens to the show and is in that Brief History Power channel knows, this is it's like a college. And I want to make this very, very clear. It's not a college. It's not a university. You're not going to get a degree. But many of the things you get from college, based on what Pat, uh, Dr. Kuntz is asserting here, you get from a Discord community. And that's not that it replaces it, but again, maybe it does. And it kind of depends on how you use these tools. So there's a real new addition to the playing field of networking that I think comes to bear on this conversation. That's the main thing I want to kind of. Assume. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think that the big difference in something that like with things like Luther classical college, we're trying to build back and something that is notably absent in almost any of the places I'm around, whether in real life or, or on the internet is that what you're getting in the models for what what's going to become American education, which are uh, English and Scottish, and I'll explain the difference in a second, is a common set of knowledge, and and not merely as reference, but as foundational to everything else that you do. So the British, generically English and Scottish, are going to be able to run an empire with guys who are simply expected to know Homer inside and out and things like trigonometry and, and algebra inside and out, the higher calculus, things like that. They're not being trained in specialties. They don't really do specialization. But what they do have is that if someone graduates from Oxford or Cambridge, which are really the only English universities until the 19th century, he has not only a set of networks, that he's from and that he gained, but he also has a set of knowledge that is common 
to anyone that shares anything of that background with him. And that's also why if you look at historical figures, you'll often see, and this, this continues with people really down through after the Second World War, is that finishing the degree is not honestly that big of a deal unless you're in some process where you need to. So for instance, if you you go to Oxford and you want to become an Anglican priest, you, you probably need to finish, although you might not have to because the bishop might just ordain you anyway, that there's really a lack of credentialism. And this pertained even to echoes of this system and things like the Missouri Synod Seminary system. The degree didn't honestly matter a whole lot in the whole scheme of things because the, the foundational knowledge and the networks that you gained were what mattered. And the insight there, especially with the English model, the Scottish are going to be a little bit different with the English model, is that what you need to know is how we got here and who we are. And that was always interpreted as a mixture of biblical wisdom. So you had to, for instance, be a professing Anglican. You had to, you had to subscribe to the 39 articles until the middle of the 19th century at Oxford and Cambridge. And that mixed with the classical inheritance largely expressed through literature and history, and then also mathematics as a way of disciplining one's thinking and also making you capable, mathematics being sort of the root of all scientific inquiry. But you don't have to have a chemistry class. You don't have to have an English literature class because this knowledge is foundational for everything else that's happening. But if you want to leave after two years and go, you know... <laughs> join the army and, and fight in India or build a railroad in the Western United States or whatever, go for it. And that, that that's because I think they, they were thinking of education as mainly a matter of being brought into a much larger intellectual conversation, stretching back thousands of years, and also a contemporary conversation that would also include people who hadn't gone to those universities because they would think, okay, well, to be educated means this. So I will acquire this body of knowledge and then I can understand these things and talk about these things. And so that, that English model is foundational for America. It really, I mean, American liberal arts colleges especially are really just echoes of what Oxford and Cambridge are until really the 20th century. Right, right. So the English model is the pursuit of a common set of technical terminology and or symbolic references that quickly unites a group into understanding itself. Um, the, the beauty of this is realizing that words are the primary technology and that if you don't have good words, that is words that are clear, if there's too much yeah. nuance in every word you speak, um, then you can't actually communicate anymore. Uh, yeah. That's precisely why you need credentialism is so no one can tell you that you didn't make any sense because um, you have a badge and things. So is the, guild, is the guild connected to this idea? Yeah, yeah. I think that if you think of a college as something like a guild, but a guild which is the reason for a liberal arts education, which is everyone's education in the West until really the end of the 19th century, then it makes a lot more sense. But what you're training for rather than some specific handicraft is to be a person who is capable of independent thought and therefore also independent command. So for instance, there's a separation between training for the military, which is run through different routes and training for the people who actually make decisions in Anglosphere countries, such as clergymen, government ministers, and let's say professional intellectuals of various kinds. And it doesn't mean, again, because of a lack of really a lack of credentialism, it doesn't mean that if you lack those things, you're nothing. But it means that Oxford or Cambridge is training you to be educated in a very general way. And it's not a specific set of shibboleths that you need to acquire. I want to be a little nitpicky about the word references because that's something that is ubiquitous in our media saturated culture. And I think that something is functioning on a different level when everyone understands it. And it's not a matter of a specific kind of media consumption that has become something more than a reference. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. 
I mean, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at yeah. there is that, you know, within your heart, within your head, however you want to imagine your anthropology mm-hmm. works in your soul, someone says something and you have in you an understanding that arises to meet it. Like that word means this. And, that, and right. so you, that's your dictionary in your heart, right? And that's what I meant by reference is that you, you have a pre-codified way of believing what they said to be true. Um, but it may or may not actually be what they said. And that's where these days things are really, really rough. Gotta say. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that it is really hard to imagine this because we deal with so much heterogeneity in every facet of life. It's 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 really hard to imagine what the levels of internal coherence are in a group which knows what it is and is actually training people to further what it currently is. It'd be nice to uh, live in the, such a group. I can't, I can't imagine such a thing. <laughs> it would it would really be good. <laughs> so the 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 English universities the the old English universities are the primary model for American education the the Scottish Can I transition this to Scottish? Can I I want to do it. I want to do it. So I've been waiting yeah. for this one. Um okay, because because I I'm like what? 18% Scottish. And so I want to take a moment to say that of all of the peoples that are in some way oppressed um, looked down on, harmed, culturally appropriated. In in modern day, I think the Scottish have it just about the worst. Not only is, I mean, people are concerned about schools with the mascot of like like the Indian, right? So Ronald McDonald's all I got to say right there, dude. Ronald McDonald is all I got to say right there. And then from there, where are we? We're the slave people that were the slave people before there was a slave people, and then several times over, uh, fleeing up to the mountains over and over again. So, uh, you know, freedom and all that, uh, it, the Scots are a forgotten people, and it really is something that they once upon a time were a passion of education, although distinguishing them from England is difficult. I'm not sure there's a difference in most people's minds. Yeah. I mean, they are the people, the people who are founding and, and running and attending Scotland's what are called ancient universities, of which there are four, right? So England has two. Scotland has four. Those those people are really linguistically and ethnically not all that distinct from the English. Um, yeah, yeah. Scots, not Gaelic, but Scots, really is just a version. It's a hard to understand, but it, it is a version of English. It is now, yeah, for sure. But yeah, what what distinguishes them not only the number of their their ancient universities, but is more than that the way in which they pursue knowledge. So the Scots have a much greater variety of subjects that can be acquired and they have a, they have a much closer relationship to what we would now think of as like research or scientific research than the English universities do because the Scottish universities are located in the places of commercial and economic dynamism and therefore scientific change and research, whereas the English universities are separated from London. And so that location really does affect their relationship to the burgeoning of scientific and mechanical and every kind of expansion and change that the West begins to undergo, especially after the Reformation. So that is something that is going to be transported to America, not just Scottish common sense philosophy, which we don't really have time to go into today, but is ubiquitous in pre-Civil War America. But but also the idea that a university is a place of like research or an engine for development and change is something that we're going to get from the Scottish, who are disproportionately influential in early American higher education. Is the common sense philosophy, I'm trying to write and not forget the same time, uh, is the common sense philosophy Scottish a good thing? I, I think that it's in some ways naive hmm. that an appeal to common sense relies on forms of cultural homogeneity that I, I don't right. really know that we ever had. Is this like common <laughs> sense realism? Is that similar as a phrase? Have you heard of that? Uh, I, I missed that. What, Is this the same idea as common sense realism? Not not exactly, just because the term realism is going to get bandied around in different discussions of how we know what we know, right? the Scots are going to propound what gets called common sense philosophy, sometimes cons- common sense realism, but sometimes not common sense in reaction to largely English, largely Oxbridge idealists like Bishop Barclay, who's, at, who's actually at Trinity College Dublin, which is a 
an Anglo-Irish version of Oxford and Cambridge. Okay. As you mentioned that, I'm yeah. going to cut in because you mentioned these four ancient universities. Is that, was, is that one of them? Trinity College Dublin? Trinity College Dublin is Ireland's really English Ireland's got version. It, got it. Yeah. yeah. And I knew that because so, you said Ireland. Yeah. So, Dublin, I, so Ireland has, you know, Anglo-Irish Trinity College, and then it has other universities later founded for the sake of Catholic Irish. But Trinity College Dublin is the sort of Oxford or Cambridge mimic From or there. offshoot. And I'm yeah, assuming in, the University of Edinburgh is going to be one of the Scottish ones. Is that right? Yeah, it's Edinburgh, uh, Glasgow, St. Andrews, and I think Aberdeen are the ancient universities of Scotland. And with the exception of St. Andrews, those are places where you're going to have this dynamism, especially at Edinburgh. All right. What's different about St. Andrews? St. Andrews is more isolated. <laughs> so at this point, St. Andrews, that I think has helped them because it has uh, they have developed a really interesting... A theological research center there. I mean, in the present day, <laughs> and partly that's because they're they're not they they do not historically have the same relationship to you know economics uh, city. That, with an Adam Smith or scientific research with a variety of people in the nineteenth century that the that the other three ancient universities do. Okay, okay, good stuff. Um, and a bit of a tangent there, but I was really curious about that ancient university idea again. How 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 old are the oldest of these? Do you know when? I want to say they are 14th or 15th century, all of them. So uh, with Oxford and Cambridge being earlier than that. So by so, ancient, we mean medieval. By ancient, they just mean old. Yeah. And they mean older that British universities are going to measure themselves. And sometimes this is framed in terms of the building materials. So red brick universities and then there are later a bunch built after the 1960s that have their own building material. They're going to measure themselves by their chronology, which is very uncommon in the United States. And we don't, we don't judge Stanford as necessarily less than Harvard simply because it's newer. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, most of us don't know that till we're like in our teens and by then it's all formed. <laughs> right. I'm not kidding right. at all. Right. So, so the American university system, the colleges then combine these models, English yeah. and Scottish and right. so you see that in the electives that are available. You see that in the research schools that pop up and all this. Where from there? Yeah, American colleges are, we have, we just have more of them. Even if you just go back to what are called the colonial colleges, everything that's founded before 1776. We have more of them because we have more religious diversity. Because American colleges combine these models of building networks and giving a classical education with more or less in the way of other uh, electives or lecture series available uh, along Scottish lines, but they exist for explicitly religious purposes. So William and Mary, which I think is third, it's either second or third in age in the United States, William and Mary is Anglican, Harvard is Congregationalist, Yale is Congregationalist, Princeton is Presbyterian, uh, and so on. And things founded after that really up to and through the Civil War are going to be some kind of religious thing. The idea uh, of a religious anything was sort of like a fish without water at this point still, though. Yeah, I mean, even the rationalist yeah. wasn't an atheist. It just yeah, wasn't yeah. cool. And even, even schools that either in their founding, such as the University of Pennsylvania, or when the King's College, which is Anglican, is sort of re-established as Columbia College, now Columbia University in New York, after the revolution, even those places that are not specifically something what in, in what we would call denominational terms are going to permit Christian expression and generally be run by clergymen for a very long time. So the idea that you have college without its being explicitly religious is really not all that thinkable. And this is the instance of this that is clearest is that under, especially the influence of common sense, uh, Scottish philosophy, that there's something very common, even at the tiniest colleges, really through the 19th century. And that is a course in what was usually called moral philosophy. It was something like metaphysics and ethics smushed together, interpreted theologically. And it would, it was usually a seminar given to seniors who were pretty much always male and it was given by the college president. 
So the college president was supposed to be a fundraiser. That was always the case in the United States. But more than that, he was supposed to be someone who could give in himself an example of this kind of combination of theological and philosophical yeah, yeah. leadership. Why, yeah. why would not the best salesman also be the best philosopher king? That I mean, it clearly they go hand in hand that the pursuit of huxting and the pursuit of wisdom go go with you. i mean that's right am i am i missing something there <laughs> well i don't know how cynical you're being but I've i mean i'm pretty I, cynical I, uh, yeah definitely yeah I, I think i i think that it's they nice were th i think they were less cynical but i think also there was an understanding of what a college was for which hmm. was idealistic in a way that is hard for us to think about not just higher education but yeah, large, large amounts of life that they thought of higher education as a way to guide the development of the nation. So the best example of this is uh, one of the grandsons of Jonathan Edwards, who actually died as president of Princeton University. His grandson, Timothy Dwight, is president of Yale right after the founding of the Republic. And Dwight is really concerned about the growth of atheism among the undergraduates, which tracks in his time with support for the French Revolution. So Dwight launches on this combination crusade against the French Revolution. And it's just what he understands is its destructive principles and a revival of Christian profession, explicit Christian profession and teaching at Yale College. And he succeeds wildly. And he inspires lots and lots of people to enter the ministry and to become missionaries, both overseas, but also as America is opening up more and more westward. And that's an ideal that I think is more or less gone in more or less every college. So he is, he, he does have to raise some money, not constantly, but he, what he needs to offer above all things is a, a, an instantiation in himself. Yeah, yeah. Of, if, of if what I, they're trying to produce. If I can be less cynical, I mean, I think the idea would be that by making seven or 15 visits a year, this man of high repute who usually spends his time talking to student body, keeping teachers, feeling good about themselves, just being, again, a pinnacle human, um, those 15 conversations a year are enough to probably bring in plenty of donations from significant organizations and our donors. And so, you know, it's all it's all it is. Times have changed, inflation, whatever, you, however you want to talk yeah. about it. Um, you yeah. got to raise so much more money now than you had ever raised before. It's just right. a different game altogether. But my, my snark there, again, is failing to see the future when you're like, okay, hey, man, we want you to be the model and the salesman. We're going to be like you, and you go be a salesman. Like, there's something you maybe could have foreseen there if you just saw the trajectory, and, and I don't know. Uh, what wisdom are we relying on? I, I don't want to judge my father too harshly. I want to learn from what yeah. I see them yeah. doing is what I want to do. Um, and with that being said, I mean, on this terrible and horrible moment of despair and, and sadness about the future of everything, especially education, we're going to stop making way to next week. This is a brief history of two white guys. I can't even end it. This is a brief history of power with two white guys. You do know where to find us or you would not be here again. We'll be back next week with the rest of our conversation, rewilding and higher education.